Hello and welcome to Asia Abridged, where we highlight the best moments from Asia Society events. I'm Dan Washburn, Chief Content Officer at Asia Society. In this episode, we listen in on a conversation between two expert voices on China. Ed Wong, who has covered China for The New York Times since 2008, and Orville Schell, director of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, who first visited China in 1976. The discussion, which took place back in March during a dinner celebrating the center's 10th anniversary, saw Wong and Schell gamely tackle some big questions. Will we see serious political change in China? Can so-called adaptive authoritarianism continue to thrive there? And what will U.S.-China relations look like in the era of Trump? We join the conversation as Wong grapples with two other questions. What remains of the cult of Mao? And are we currently witnessing what could be described as the cult of Xi? I, mean, I think that we're in an era in China now where clearly the, uh, the cult of Mao has, uh, has faded away into the past. And, we're, um, and up until Xi Jinping came to power, we people believed that at least the Chinese leadership knew that they had to move away from this personality-driven model of governing China. I think Xi Jinping has brought that into question again. And some people, uh, including some of my journalist peers, have written that there's a cult of personality being formed around Xi or that Xi and the propaganda apparatus are trying to promote this. I'm not sure exactly by that. I think that the level of sort of hero worship and the following that Xi has is very different than what Mao has. I don't think even with his small attempts at making himself into this representation First of what he called the China dream or the Chinese dream. And then now of something even bigger than that, I think maybe something about China's emergence on to the global stage. I think that those representations still cast him in a way as an ordinary leader, although one who's willing to break the norms. So I think that Mao himself has faded. There are factions within China that are trying to revive some of the philosophies and we call them the new left. Um, and even see himself might feel some pressure from them. But I think in general that that era is gone. And I don't think whatever one wants to think about the current leadership, I don't think that that's coming back. Shell then asked Wong, who this spring served as a guest lecturer on journalism at Princeton, to reflect on his eight years covering China. How had it changed his impression of the country's trajectory? At the end of my time in China, I think one thing that I concluded was that it's impossible to really make conclusions about where China is heading. I think that one thing I did think was that too often uh, journalists and maybe other people who write about China tend to frame things in terms of the legitimacy of the party. I think oftentimes I can probably show you like 10 or a dozen stories I've written where somewhere in what we call the nut graph, we say, oh, this might bring into question the legitimacy of the party for Uh, many Chinese. But after having traveled around China to many corners of it, I'd have to say that party rule is fairly strong in terms of sort of the way that the people have faith in the central government. I think that many Chinese have faith in the top leaders, the people who are in Zhongnanhai. And even though they complain about local officials and the party leadership knows about these complaints, many Chinese will not question whether the party is bringing the country in the right direction, or at least has the best interests of the country at heart. And is it surprising to you 
that this structure, which was basically laid down in the 1950s, still coheres, as you point out, maintains a, a certain loyalty, discipline, and is actually quite functional. Right, but as we know, that it underwent sort of radical changes during that time. So, you know, the break between Mao and Deng, and then 89 was a break, and then afterwards, the jump-starting of reforms again by Deng and um, pushing forth that. So I think that, the, I mean, some people have called it adaptive authoritarianism, and that the party had been able to adapt, and now we're at another point where it's a testing period for the party, and whether it can push China forward, uh, mostly in terms of some changes to the economic model. I don't think people are questioning whether there will be changes or significant changes to political model. I think that 10 years ago, maybe my predecessors, that would have been a question that they kept asking themselves when they were covering China. But I think now if you ask any serious journalist in China or anyone studying China, it, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who's really looking at whether there is serious political change about to take place within the ranks of the party. Uh, you, you, you think that, that, that we probably won't see serious political change? Well, I think that we would be, um, so this is where we're getting to predictions. Um, so yeah. I think that we, it's more likely that it'll end up being status quo for a long period of time. I think that they've, pro they've proven themselves to be adaptive enough and that the systems of control that they've put in place in China, whether you're talking about propaganda, the propaganda apparatus, um, including control of things like the internet, to the security apparatus in places like Western China, where you see more protests, um, these are firmly entrenched and they're growing uh, more canny each year. You know, I think from our sort of Western perspective, and we all carry that with us when we go to China, you could say that the, the system there really shouldn't work, and yet it has. Right. And and what, I think we've waited, waited, waited. We thought, well, this there's a structural instability here. There's one there. There's this, that, and the other. And yet, here we are, 2017, right. and it's still, still going. And for someone like me, who watched the whole of 1989, when it seemed impossible that they would ever get the genie back in the bottle, they did. And what do you attribute that to? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it, it, I, I think partially to Deng Xiaoping's incredible agility that he, in a, in a certain sense, was not sort of committed to fundamental political reform, but did understand economic reform and could balance that incredible discontinuity. I mean, it's still counterintuitive to me. Right. And one thing, I mean, you're in, implicit in your question is the idea that we sort of, as Western observers of China, we, I think a lot of observers throughout the decades and the centuries have, in a way, wondered whether China will follow certain models that have been established in the West. And I'm wondering why you think, and I feel, my instinctually feel that Americans and maybe other Westerns feel that way about China more than other countries in other parts of the world. Why do you think that people hold China up as this potential mirror to their own country and that they, they wish there's a longing or a wish that the China model might sort of follow in the path of a more Western model only for people to be disappointed time and again. Well, I mean, I think, you know, as well as I, I think this is sort of the American sort of a unique quality to our evangelical personalities, <laughs> that whether we are Christians spreading the gospel, capitalists spreading the market, or 
Democrats spreading the idea of the city on the hill, we do have this notion of our infinite rightness that we're on. Clinton said it. He said to John Clinton, he said, you're on the wrong side of history. That history is going in a direction. We're on the right side. Everybody else sooner or later will come around. And we just question of a little more, a few more ballet troops, a little more educational exchange, open those markets, and we'll get there. But I'm not so sure. Are you? Right. Uh, I'm not so sure. And I think that, but there's still something about, um, I don't think Americans have the same missionary zeal for all parts of the world. I think there's something about China that draws, that um, brings us out in them. And I'm trying to- Well, you're Chinese. Uh, right. What do you think? Um, well, I'm, I'm Chinese, but I was born here, so I'll have to <laughs> Plus, my parents are Cantonese, so we can say- Does that we can discount discuss, them from- <laughs> Right. We can discuss the various regional differences. Um, but I mean, I think but, it's fair to say that you don't see the Japanese acting this way. Right. Even the British, they just wanted to sell opium. But I do think that, that there was something about China that was at once, I mean, it's this curious attraction, repulsive, repulsion, love-hate relationship that Chinese and Americans have had. We're at once incredibly close, and yet we're incredibly sort of, uh, we, 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 we struggle and, and, and fight a lot as well. So what phase of the relationship do you think we're entering right now? Well, I, dear me, uh, I'd have to say that we, I, I think we are going into a, a, a quite a fraught period where the, the antagonisms between the countries threaten to overwhelm the attraction and the sort of the, the love, part of the love-hate relation. I mean, this is oscillating pulse. And I, I'm not sure exactly what, how our president's policies will come to play into that. But... Uh, it's, it's very dangerous. Well, tell me, as you are contemplating the meaning of life off in Princeton now and don't have these daily burdens of, of, of writing and running the bureau, how do you see the future of China? I don't, you can make a prediction if you want, but are you optimistic? Uh, it's interesting that people always talk about it in terms of optimistic or pessimistic. I mean, I think that I would say, in ter I mean, if I had to choose a word, it would be optimistic because I think the country will remain fairly stable. I don't think that it's, um, if we're using sort of 20th century China as the benchmark, then we're a long ways away from that. We're a long ways away from mid-20th mid century China. Mm -hmm. And I think that there will be increasing prosperity for a certain segment of the Chinese and that those people will then be able to go abroad, they'll be able to send their children to good schools overseas, their, their preference will be for overseas schools, and that they will be, in a way, sort of ambassadors for their country. And there will be this increasing urbanization in China where people will come to the cities and think that there's a chance they can realize certain dreams, I think, in the cities, even if the reality of that is somewhat different. Do you, do you worry about the South China Sea, East China Sea? Um, yeah, I mean, the South China Sea, I know, is a big issue. And, and it reached very tense moments in the last few years, I think, when I was um, there in Beijing covering this and other issues. Um, we saw the Chinese putting the oil rig in Vietnamese waters and then it, obviously the building up of these uh, low tide elevation features into what the Chinese claim are islands. So I think that um, I don't think that there's a, an easy solution for that. And I think that the big debate within America is going to be within American policy circles about whether you sort of 
cede that territory to China. I know that various thinkers here in the U.S. have said that's it, China has the right to have their own Monroe Doctrine. Like the U.S. has their Monroe Doctrine, and they um, they put it in place at a time when it made sense for the Western Hemisphere, and now it's China's time in the East. So, of course, the Caribbean didn't have Japan next to it. Right. So it's much more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let, let me ask you a final question, and uh, I'll even hazard an answer afterwards. How do you think Donald Trump and Xi Jinping are going to get along? I think these are two big personalities, and uh, I think that Xi is probably has probably studied. I assume Xi has studied Trump. And I'm not sure I can say that about the other way around. But the, um, I think that they're. I mean, I think that the um, buttons that they can push. Uh, might be fairly obvious, and we've already seen Trump retreat from sort of the his um, putting w- the one China policy on the table. We've seen him retreat from that, and obviously something was said behind the scenes that forced him to take a step back. It could be something um, like uh, the fact that they need to work together in North Korea, or it mm-hmm. could be other issues. But um, but I think that um, the the Chinese leadership probably knows that Trump is brash, and that because of that, he there's a s- certain level at which he can be played. Yeah, I think particularly if uh, they're they're smart and offer him a big deal, right? And right. you know, uh, they're very good at deals. Very good at deals, and you know, really <laughs> lather on the pomp and ceremony, right. and then say, "Let's you and I settle things." Right. You know. Yeah. I could imagine that actually something would happen that would be game changing. Hmm. But on the other hand, I can imagine the opposite. Thanks for listening to Asia Abridged. Our show page is asiasociety.org slash podcast, where you'll find links to this and other episodes. Please subscribe to Asia Abridged on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, leave a comment and rating. They do help a lot. You can find Asia Society on Facebook at facebook.com slash asiasociety. And we're at Asia Society on Twitter. For the whole team at Asia Society, I'm Dan Washburn.